I was alone sitting in a hut and I said my goodbyes to family and I prepared to transition and I just sort of faded out and assumed that I would, that would be my last breath. Actually, I did wake up the next morning, but everything was much more vibrant and life was so colorful in, a, in such a deeply more profound way. And the, the sounds were so intense. And the message was, by worrying about dying, I'm not living. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us on the podcast today is a person who has, in many ways, done more to advance access to psychedelics than anyone else through his movement and organization, Decriminalized Nature. It really is nice to connect one-on-one. Uh, you know, we've, we've shared some emails, uh, and I'm certainly familiar with Decriminalized Nature over the years. But in preparing for this podcast, it seems like I'm not going to call you a total newcomer, but you're a relative newcomer to the world of psychedelic entheogens and beyond, at least in the research I found. I would love to hear your story uh, up until kind of the discovery of entheogens in your life. Hi, Ronan. So first, thank you very much for having me here. And uh, we did exchange some kind of fascinating emails. And so I, I do appreciate you inviting me to, to come and speak today. And so in terms of my own involvement in plant medicine, it's pretty recent. Uh, I had my first experience in uh, October of 2018, but my uh, life really has been one long psychedelic journey, if you will. Um, starting from a young age of uh, seven years old, I, I had a profound experience with the death of a loved one, and it sent me into this deep obsessive process of trying to understand what um, death meant relative to life, but also the infinite, because I was told that they would go to heaven, uh, raised Catholic. And so it sort of sent me spiraling into trying to understand what the infinite was, what nothing was, uh, zero, and uh, what this existence uh, in this finite plane really was all about. So um, the, 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 the cost of that was a lot of sleepless nights. I, I finally reconciled that at, uh, at least my ability to, to have a good night's sleep at around the age of 20, 23. But uh, the upside was that um, that I was able to uh, live my life from a profound place of understanding that uh, it wasn't, you know, my, my time was short on this planet, so I better make the best of it, so, which enabled me to kind of get through some of my some of my childhood trauma, some of the things that plagued some others in my community, including um, you know, gang violence and uh, street violence and incarceration, um, hopelessness. Um, I really sought to live life to its fullest, so I spent. A lot of my time just trying to put myself in situations that would expand my awareness in that moment. So going to college, first one in my family, first amongst my friends, uh, was really me trying to expand my understanding of the world. My degree is in biology and anthropology, my, my bachelor's. But I took a trip into the Ecuadorian rainforest. By way of example, I did that. Uh, I lived as a hunter-gatherer for three months uh, for when I was 23 years old. And the intention there was, really, again, just to blow my own mind, um, disrupt my understanding of reality. Uh, and then six months later, uh, I was uh, when I was in the rainforest, actually, I learned about being accepted to Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, where I got my master's. So within six months of being in the rainforest and watching people live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and walking through the halls of Yale University um, and hearing about the life of very... Um, privileged and wealthy people relative to hunter-gatherers, 
Uh, and those kinds of extremes are what I've tried to do to disrupt my reality and immerse myself in cognitive dissonance so that I can then come up with a narrative that is more expansive. And that's been a pattern in my life of doing those kinds of things. In many ways, I've lived a psychedelic life with a number of journeys in my life and um, really just trying to get the most that I could out of life. But it was the mushroom journey that I had in um, 2018 uh, that really launched me in terms of understanding how to disrupt my my conscious, my, my understanding of reality in that moment. And so I became a, a advocate of these medicines being liberated, particularly for communities from which, uh, for example, from which I came, which um, don't know about or didn't know about these plant medicines growing up, um, where we were taught they were largely, you know, illegal drugs would kill you, would put you in prison. And so it became my mission to get the word out primarily for marginalized communities and share, share the word. Uh, unique thing here is that I come from Mexican background. And we know that Mexico is a country very rich with entheogenic use history. An irony there is that our own medicines were no longer available to us. And we were going to prison, our people were going to prison for considering using them. And so that this is part of the reason why I, I've um, spoken strongly about no limits to prevent incarceration of people in marginalized communities. Thank you for sharing that. Um... So, so many questions come come out of that. So did I hear you right? There was a death in your family or someone close to you at the age of seven, and you basically had sleepless nights until the age of 23. Is, did, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So I, I began obsessing. It was actually, I remember the night, like it was yesterday where uh, I was introduced to the concept of you know, when I asked a family member, where did so-and-so go when they died? And the response was, they went to heaven where they will live forever. And then I then started to try to conceptualize forever. And it just sent me down the rabbit hole uh, every night thereafter until the age of 23. And it's an interesting story how I overcame that obsession. But every night I would lay down and not fall asleep until one or two or three in the morning until I just exhausted myself from trying to figure out what infinity was relative to the finite, relative to zero or non-existence. Um, and this was just my nightly obsession, uh, trying to make sense of that. But I was finally able to get over it through some <laughs> a near-death experience I had in the rainforest, actually. First of all, were, were you a particularly precocious kid? Because I look at my six, almost seven-year-old, and I don't see him obsessing over it. Of course, you know, God willing, he doesn't experience a traumatic death anytime soon for people close to him. But um, that's a, a very big intellectual uh, spiritual, philosophical bite to chew on as a as a seven year old was this kind of consistent with your personality, or was this kind of a, an awakening? Awakening. It was an awakening. Um, I, I don't know why it happened. I assumed it happened to everyone. I would ask my cousins, "Do you, you know? Do you obsess with death?" And they would look at me like I was weird. Certainly, it is something that happened to me at that age because of the introduction of death and and the infinite in, in one day. And I don't know how many other people obsess about that, but it was certainly became my obsession. And but the upside of that really, again, was you know, then I started looking at major decisions in my life from there forward. And now as a seven year old, you don't have a lot of major decisions. But when I became a teenager and I had to, you know, my friends dropped out of high school at junior year, my choices in life were always guided by I, you know, one one foot in the grave. I, I, one day I will have my last breath. How do I want to live this moment relative to that? And that was always my guide 
were important decisions. And I think if, if you look at the trajectory of my life, particularly given the, the challenges that I had growing up, I, I think, you know, people like me were supposed to not go to college or university, but they were influenced by that, that particular perspective of looking back at life and understanding that it is this miraculous thing that is not long lasting. It, it will be over soon. And so there's just this embrace of life. And I think that's also one of the reasons I feel deeply in love with, with nature. Uh, is just the beauty of it all and became an advocate of uh, conservation biology, of uh, environmental um, stewardship at, at a young age. Thank you for sharing that. It, I, I'm very curious to hear what happened at the age of 23. Um, but before we get there, I'm curious to know, were you able to reconcile these thoughts about zero and the infinite and, and life? Like what were some of the insights? I, I, I'm presuming that since your first experience with entheogens in 2018 or, or whenever it was, that, that exploration has probably continued and evolved and all that kind of stuff. But from seven to that moment, like how did you reconcile that? If you can share it. I mean, these are conversations that really start to lean into the ineffable, um, but I'm always learning, uh, wanting to learn more about people's perspective on this and how they understand it. Again, if there's anything to share, I don't know if there's something that that's easily translatable into this conversation, but. Pretty straightforward. I, the reconciliation with zero, the infinite, and this moment of the finite that we're in didn't, I didn't find a path to reconciliation of that until the age of, of, well, let's see, I would have been 48 when I had my first mushroom experience. I'm sorry, 50, Okay, actually. Uh, and that was in 2018. The mushroom experience, and, and the reason it was so profound is because it offered me a reconciliation of a lifelong struggle with reconciliation of zero, the infinite, and our moment of finite in between. Um, and, and I'm happy to kind of sh speak to that what happened in that journey. The near-death experience that I had in, 2000, in 1993 was in the rainforest. I was not a very good hunter-gatherer. And um, that, so I was losing a lot of weight, And uh, but I was living with a tribe, big on sharing food because the oil companies had come in and they had disrupted the ecosystem. And so the, the, the native folks, the Ashwad in this case, had largely depleted their meat resources. And so uh, food was a very uh, scarce thing, particularly meat, meat resources were a scarce thing. So they would save it for their families. So I was pretty hungry and we were visiting some folks and uh, in, a, in a tribe, nearby tribe and, and I was offered food, but it was kind of some older food, um, you know, without making things too, too gross. There was like maggots in there with fish. And, and so I ate it cause I was hungry. Well, it, it didn't settle well. So that night I had a pretty intense uh, fever and got up to 104 and I pretty much oh, uh, said my goodbyes to family. I was alone sitting in a, in a, in a hut and uh, I said my goodbyes to family and I prepared to transition and uh, I just sort of faded out and assumed that I would, that would be my last breath. When I actually, I did wake up the next morning, but everything was much more vibrant and Life was so um, colorful in, a, in such a deeply more profound way. And the, the sounds were so intense that uh, and, and the message was by worrying about dying, I'm not living and I need to just let it go. So it was more about mm -hmm. suppression than it was about reconciliation. What plant medicines have since shared with me is that there are narratives 
that help us reconcile any paradox or any uh, paradox we may carry in our stories. And that those narratives are narratives of peace. When we have a situation where we have something that needs to be reconciled, we learn something new, right? The, 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 one of the journeys that people have, suddenly they realize I am God. I'm not meaning I am the God, but I am part of God. Then it's like, well, wait, how can I be God and a human at the same time? And then that creates this cognitive dissonance. And, um, yeah. But then as you build the narrative, that narrative enriches your life. If you can build a narrative of reconciliation, it enriches your life. So what happened on that mushroom journey and then journeys subsequent to that is I found narratives that allowed me to weave together all of the paradoxes in my life and uh, bring reconciliation to all of it, uh, including zero and the infinite, and create a, a story that allows me to live with peace. But really what it is, it's a story. Obviously, I have no way of proving it other than my inner knowing. But I, I think that is sometimes what causes us grief, depression, is um, those, those internal paradoxes that, that cause us uh, distress. Can you share that internal story that has helped you reconcile it? Sure. Yeah. So the, the mushroom journey, again, it was, I was suppressed it in 1993 when I was in the rainforest. I suppressed the obsession with death so I could live and uh, fully. Um, but then in, 19, in 2018, when I had my mushroom journey and I went in, it was not my intention to reconcile that. I suppressed it enough. But my mother had died and about my father had died. Five other family members had died. So it was still sort of lingering there, you know, all within a short period of a few years of each other. So it was all lingering there yeah. in, in a suppressed state. I had done a lot of meditation the two years previous. I was doing two hours a day of meditation, uh, trying to get to the other side of the finite. I had gotten reached the void where, where just peacefulness uh, in the sense that nothing is real but it's all real, but it's all meaningless. So cosmic nihilism, that's the state I had reached. And so I didn't really have a lot going on in my head. It was a lot of silence, but without meaning. And then I uh, had my mushroom journey, sort of this openness to receive whatever came. And what came to me was the infinite. It was a higher voice. Some call it spirit, the higher self, God, whatever. But it wasn't me as this me in physical form. It was much wiser than I am. And uh, it showed me this sort of infinite uh, fractal from with no, no beginning, no end. It's just us, collective us, emerging into unawareness from awareness. So original awareness, fractalizing out into greater complexity, and then going into the darkness or the unawareness, with that which we fear, but you know, we're sort of life living up against that. And it said, you are there. And it pointed to a place in the fractal, and it said, this is you, and if you if you live from love, you help create life. If you live from fear, you help senesce life. And our purpose for being here is to live, to express life, the beauty of life. And um, what, what helped me reconcile all of that was the showing me the infinite, that there is no beginning, no end. And so the idea that we're trying to find how something came from nothing is a meaningless experiment because it didn't. It's always been here. We're of the tribe of something, um, not of the tribe of nothing. So we don't have to you know, destroy our minds trying to reconcile that. It's unreconcilable. But the other thing is that this moment in time is our sort of moment in time to live and be a part of this grand existence. The transition, which we call death, that's uh, also part of the experience. Uh, so it, it just helped me reconcile all of that.
Man, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for, for sharing that. I have no idea what you actually experienced, but I was imagining it in my head as you were telling it. And um, it was uh, it was really cool. So so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know we, we came here probably talk, to talk a little bit more about decriminalized nature and, and, and advocacy and, and let's call it the politics around that. But I do have one more question, which was um, what actually two questions. One is, you grew up. Nah, let me start with this one. What was it like being a hunter gatherer? Like that is a, a big, <laughs> big leap. Um, and uh, kudos to you for having, I don't know, the the courage or the stupidity or both to do that. But um, curious to know what it was like. Tremendous. Um, you know, for for an Eastside kid from East San Jose, um, you know, poverty. Uh, our, our greatest experiences on vacation were going to the Grand Canyon. Like we didn't just we didn't have a lot of things to mess with our reality other than right. the stuff in our neighborhoods um, to be in that situation with hunter gatherers. And I had studied anthropology and wanted to really understand life and humans and our relationship to the planet at UCLA. So being in that situation was really a dream, but it was actually a dream that I had as even a, a small child. Uh, I just obsessed with life, the intensity of life of the rainforest was one aspect of it. And it was really tremendous to walk through the rainforest quietly, trying to not to disturb the animals, to be a hunter. And I remember walking through the rainforest with folks from there, from the Ashwad tribe, kind enough to take me in and, and bring me along. And when they walked through the rainforest, they walked with such grace that you couldn't even hear a leaf crack. And then here I come and it sounds like, you know, a Sasquatch walking through a, a forest, my feet just thudding on these because I wasn't experienced in it so just the 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 level of sophistication that it took to be a hunter-gatherer the you know intergenerational experiences that are passed on the understanding that they had about every plant i could point to something they could tell me a use almost universally or don't use it or you know this is what we combine it with just such a deep rich understanding of the rainforest as a community that they were in which really, for me, solidified my approach to the world as more of an ecosystem approach to living as opposed to a scientific reduction approach to living, which is what I was trained in biology, reduce, 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 reduce to understand. Here, they understood things in context of everything else in an interrelated way. And so it just really brought that forward for me. In terms of the actual living the life of a hunter-gatherer, um, probably won't make a career out of it because I was not the least bit successful. It just takes too much skill for someone from East San Jose to develop in a short period of time. So, uh, yeah, I lost 30 pounds uh, before I left in three months. But it was beautiful. I mean, it was absolutely the most enriching experience of my life and, and in and of itself a truly psychedelic experience. If by that we mean pulling ourselves into a different dimension of reality and experiencing it fully, that's absolutely what it was. Did you leave because you were losing too much weight or were you just kind of committed to a three-month journey there? I was committed to a three-month period, um, okay. which is probably good because if I would have stayed longer, I, <laughs> I would have continued to to lose weight. Um, so yeah, I, I had my um, ticket already bought to leave three months later. So 2018, um, you have... Uh, oh, sorry. Before you focused on psychedelics, I was reading that you were part of the decrim and legalization movements around cannabis uh, as well. Um, how, how did that enter the picture? Yeah, so that was very educational for me. Um, I was part of a lot of mistake making that I learned from. 
Um, starting as early as 2002, uh, my, the council office that I worked in, we were the ones responsible for setting setting the trend of setting limits on cannabis um, as we were passing legislation to um, decriminalize or, or legalize really uh, a regulated um, a framework for dispensaries or collectives at the time. And then it just became more and more and more of putting regulations and limits, limiting number of permits, limiting amounts, um, and, and very constraining regulations. And so when, and so I was part of that, and then I became a lobbyist advocating for the very same things in, in cannabis from 2008 to 2013, 2014, I actually had a couple of cannabis businesses that we sort of let go because they became just so dark competitive, greed-driven that um, I just had to step away from it. But it was a really important lesson in uh, the things that went wrong in legislating um, a, a new emerging thing that grows from the ground, such as plant medicine, uh, cannabis. And so when, when I had that plant medicine experience with mushrooms and then ayahuasca, DMT, and then later with peyote, it, it really was such a profound experience that I thought, wow, how do you put this in a capsule? and put someone in a thera therapeutic clinic. I mean, certainly there's space for that, but um, how do you do that and allow someone to have that kind of expansive experience who might be, say, from deep East Oakland, let's say a 22-year-old young man who was raised in violence and trauma and deserves to have an awakening experience if that's what they want of this kind, how do you contain that in a pill or an office? And I just couldn't get there from there. It's just too too much. So that's where it was like, okay, we cannot follow the cannabis model on this if we're going to liberate people. Uh, we, we have to try something new. And so the idea was, well, let's start with a model of abundance, make sure everyone get access and, and go from there. Was your involvement with cannabis, and I'm going to ask a question about the, you know, the clinic and abundance thing, but was your involvement with cannabis just because you happened to be involved with council at the time, or was that something that you had been passionate about uh, at the time? So I started smoking cannabis at the age of 12 um, okay. and then pretty heavily through high school. And it was largely to sedate um, and self-medicate. Yep. But then to get to college, I stopped uh, focused on um, you know, trying to get through school. So when my council office found itself right in the center of it, because my boss was the president of the Oakland City Council. And so all things went through his office and I was one of his legislative aides. It was just one of those things where, oh, this is cool. Like I have a relationship with cannabis. It probably saved my life growing up um, by helping me find a different way than the violence I saw around me. And now I get to help make it legal. Uh, so, but we just didn't know, right? So none of us, we thought we were doing good by liberating it and legalizing it. But in retrospect, that the lessons were in what we could have done better to uh, minimize what's happening now with with the um, yeah some of the struggles that are out there. Okay, um, I'll, I'll circle back to that um, because I do want to focus on decriminalized nature. Um, and so, tell us about how uh, decriminalized nature came to be. You had this experience with psilocybin in two thousand and eighteen, and at least from what I read in preparing for this conversation you know, shortly thereafter, uh, the, the idea for the movement came to life. But tell us about that. Yeah. So, so I had that experience and that I shared with you. And the next day I was um, in awe. And then um, a couple of days later, I was 
pissed off. Why did it take so long for me to have this experience? I wish I would have had it at 14 and had a lot more uh, well-slept nights. But uh, it was such an intense experience that I began to look for community because I really wanted to understand what happened to me um, coming from a science background physiologically. So I I read a great study about uh, from UC Davis, the research that was done about the impact of of, um, psilocybin and LSD, DMT on um, on the neural system, particularly the axons and the dendrites and the growth of those. And so I began to really try to make sense of this, the science, as well as uh, what does it mean implications for society and started going around talking to community. And I went to a seminar uh, in the Bay Area uh, about entheogens and their prevalence in our communities, uh, even ones that we don't know are entheogens or have entheogen- entheogenic um, capabilities, like star jasmine, for example. And it was uh, done by a particularly uh, uh, well-read person and um, scientist who gave a presentation. Turns out that person was part of this larger psychedelic community in the Bay Area. So I told him I had come out of legislation. I told him I was interested in seeing what we could do to um, help advance the cause. He called folks together. I was brand new in it. I didn't know anyone. He called folks together. It ended up being 12 people sitting around a table at a building that I owned at the time. And we talked about what should we do here? And someone, Dr. Gary Kono, actually, uh, to give him credit, said, I think we should do a decriminalization effort. And uh, so I said, okay, well, I can help with that. Uh, And then we decided a resolution was the best course. And then from there, it sort of just the wave caught us. And it was almost as if we were caught in this current that needed to happen. We were just riding the raft. Um, It was happening so fast that we could barely keep up with it. This is going through the Oakland City Council. And within five months, we're, you know, unanimous approval of this. So it was really intense. And then after that, we had just uh, thousands of people reaching out to us who wanted to start chapters in their local area. A group of us from that original group. Uh, many, many of those were underground space holders. They chose to stay underground, understandably so. Others, myself and Larry Norris, who's the, the co-founder and um, one of the main activists in Decrim Nature nationally, decided we wanted to help take this nationally. And so we, we just took our model. We gave it away. We gave everything away. And we supported people in, in building out their own Decrim Nature efforts in their local cities. What were the foundational principles of decriminalized nature when it got founded, um, other than to achieve decriminalization? And how has that evolved uh, between then and now? So three of us sat around, as we knew we were going to do something, we sat around a table, there was three of us, and we uh, asked the basic question at the core, what are we? And you know, we stripped everything away and we said, well, we are what the message is, love. So. Um, but then what does that mean when you're translating love into policy? And that's where we came up with equitable access. So everybody, regardless of income, should have access to this, these medicines and to the education and information necessary and to the space holding community support systems that are necessary. So equitable access became a core principle. And then the others were that we're focusing on nature. Uh, those medicines that come from nature. And and it wasn't because we were discriminating against synthetics. It was because we uh, saw something really sacred about this planet and our relationship of our ancestors with nature to produce these plants and fungi that have these deep, profound consciousness experiences that we said, 
you know, the very least, let's really push to decriminalize these because it's nature. And then from these, we can then build to have bigger conversations about decriminalizing synthetics that impact consciousness. But that's a much more mature and sophisticated conversation to have because the amount of synthetics that can be produced is almost endless. So, and their impacts are, you know, can be all over the place. So we have to get to the point where we can have a conversation about consciousness. But first, let's have a conversation about nature. And, uh, and so then other principles included transparency, because we wanted to speak truth and be about truth and openness. The other was decentralization. Let's not try to control. Let's let people just roll with it. And then open source. Let's just give everything away. So th those were the primary principles. And have those principles changed? Two questions. Have those principles changed uh, since the founding or are they consistent? I imagine they're consistent, but maybe have expanded. Uh, and secondly, has the open sourcing um, and decentralization gone as you had hoped or have there been challenges with that? So the, still the same principles. That's an easy question. Um, very much the same. We have an organizer's handbook on our website that has been the same handbook, same principles for three years, three and a half years. Uh, in terms of has it gone, you know, this one of the most wonderful things about this experience, as challenging as it's been uh, in terms of my own seeing my own shadows, as an opportunity to see my own shadows has been very challenging, um, but I, I embrace it. One of the amazing things has been just to see human nature unfold as a new, as a new economy, a new industry potential unfolds into human awareness. And to sort of sit on the tip of the arrow and watch that happening has really taught me a lot about human nature. Ideally, and I really try hard to come from a place of compassion and not judgment. If, you know, if I do come from judgment, it's my own shadow speaking. But I, it's been fascinating to watch the, the struggles uh, with people as even our own leaders struggle with, is this my opportunity to make money? Is this my opportunity to get fame? Is this my opportunity to satisfy some need of my ego? And, and that's a constant struggle for, I think, humans. So no different here. It's just been fascinating to watch as, it, as, as uh, our movement has expanded into uncharted territory. I don't know if you can or want to, but can you, can you elaborate on, you know, that a, a little bit um because i can i can totally see that and i'll just be very transparent one of the thoughts that i've been thinking about recently which is probably germane to some of the sort of more political advocacy kind of conversations is that um our whole society has been built uh on the pursuit of what i'd call power and money um and for most of human history, the pursuit of power and money was necessary for survival. Um, you know, organi organizing, making sure that we're not the inadequate hunter gatherers trying to get food when we're not actually equipped to do so uh, in the rainforest kind of thing and working in a culture to ensure survival. But we've kind of gotten pretty close to a point in, in, in the operations of the planet uh, that survival for most is pretty well assured, you know, not all by any stretch, but for most people, survival is pretty much a given these days. And so it invites the question of if survival is a given, do we need a society that's architected towards power and money, which were the focus when survival was not a question? And so something I've been struggling with, uh, not struggling with, but thinking about, it's one of those things that keep me up at night these days being like, what, how do we how do we reconsider everything if, if we change that fundamental assumption about what's valuable in our society? Um, 
so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if that can be reflected back to, you know, the, the, the shadows emerging, emerging or seeing, you know, the shadows of like, oh, I can be famous. Oh, I can make money, all that kind of stuff. Because I think all of that is precipitated on inherently the still high value we put on power and money. Love it. Yeah. No, I have quite a bit to say about that, but I'll do my best to keep it synthesized into a somewhat short statement. So helping lead a a movement of abundance and compassion and cooperation into um, a country that is really the belly of the beast of extractive capitalism and which has really been for the last 50 years um, operating under this rubric of corporate expansion into the the world really as a way of spreading uh, hegemonic control over paradigms. And I get it, right? We all come into this world and what we want even more than freedom is order. So what better way to create order than to have everyone in the world speaking the language I speak or seeing the world through the prism through which I see, because then it, it creates a world that's a reflection of me. And that's, that's the logic behind some sort of the globalization, corporate expansion around the world which is a, a, a more acceptable way than military, you know, uh, domination, which has gone out of out of vogue now. And so we live in the belly of that beast. And, and by the way, I, I run a building company. I'm fully uh, immersed in capitalism, but I understand it's un- dark underbelly as well. Uh, and and so organizing abundance and compassion model into that with the intention to transform the human experience towards more love and compassion in the world through these very powerful plant medicines has been really eye-opening because, again, not from a place of judgment, from but from compassion, most people then, as a result of living within the belly of the beast, come from a place of scarcity, which is, I need to pay my bills. Um, there's so much competition for resources that sometimes becoming famous or well-known, or expanding your number of friends on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, is a good way of building security for yourself that, you know, I have some hope for survival in this. And even though we're not living hand to mouth out there trying to find fruit from, you know, from a wild tree or wild berries anymore, we still are in that scarcity mindset where working for $15 an hour in many places in the U.S. is no longer feasible. So people are still struggling to make ends meet very much. And people don't want to be in that. And and so uh, it, it is challenging for people. And so a lot of our leaders around the U.S. have been challenged with that decision making, that crossroad where it's, you know, I can I can now have that opportunity I've been waiting for using my trajectory with DN or I could stay the course of compassion, abundance, and not seek to personally financially benefit from my position here. That's a tough, tough thing for people. And um, I think, you know, having holding compassion for people like that, people who have to make that decision is, is the only way to do it without getting uh, endlessly frustrated. I understand that I have resources at my disposal that others may not. So I have to hold compassion. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we lose just as many leaders to that moment in time as we, as we keep. Right. Is there a way, way to reconcile that though? Is there a, you know, if, if I go back to the fundamental thesis of 
neoliberal economics and and Western values and and all that kind of stuff. It's the trickle down effect. It's you raise everybody else up by raising yourself up, and we've seen that hasn't worked exactly as planned. But at the same token, you know there are less less people in poverty worldwide. There's less people hungry worldwide. So there's been some of that, uh, and I think we're just running up against the limits of that because it's come at the sacrifice in many ways of meaning and purpose. It's like, are we just here to consume? Is that all I'm here to do is gather resources, keep as much as I can, pass it along to my kids, and and that's a successful life. Um, But is there a way to reconcile that between that desire, that drive, and and still having, you know, compassion, abundance, love? I believe there is. And, you know, our movement really said, we don't know we're going to, we want to decriminalize, just make these um, not illegal to grow, gather, gift, and just let it be abundant in our uh, society for personal use. But we always knew, okay, what comes next in terms of commerce? Uh, and where I think we've made mistakes as a movement is then when we get to that question, we feel compelled to fit it into an existing model, which again, if you're, if you're trying to fit it into an existing model, which is already a framework for extractive capitalism, then you're going to get what you get. But on the other hand, if, if you're okay with kind of gray area, and this is what we share with folks is, yes, there's going to be people doing things in these communities that are sort of pushing the margins of legality or sometimes going way beyond that line. And let's for a moment just be okay with gray. As we work through in these communities like Oakland, like Ann Arbor, what is a good local commerce economy look like. So what we're doing here in Oakland and San Francisco, these two cities have joined forces and leading the charge are particularly female healers. Uh, These are underground healers, uh, come from lineage or black, brown, underground communities and therapists or Western trained joining together and saying, hey, how do we build uh, policies of commerce around healing people? And so you'll get that kind of creative uh, energy flowing if you just can, everybody can just take a breath and relax with gray area for a little bit and then see what emerges, which is much more natural in terms of ecosystem approaches. It's much more natural to do that rather than like slapping on some rubric onto an ecosystem that's emerging, right? Uh, And saying, this is the way it must be. And I'm really inspired by the work of economists like Jeremy Rifkin, by futurists like Tony Saba, who runs Rethink X who are recognizing that we are in this moment of um, technological disruption, particularly around energy, transportation, information, food, and materials. And as all of this uh, disruption occurs, what's going to happen is the local is going to be much more empowered to find local solutions to global crises, be it climate change, be it housing. And we see that happening real time, um, not just with solar and driverless vehicles, and the production of much more sophisticated things with 3D computers, CNC machines that are pulling information off the internet for free and producing things, but also with housing. Here in California, housing is shifting towards decentralized, democratized housing, meaning that any homeowner can become solutions to the housing crisis by building greater density. And this is a movement that's been happening in California for three years. So I'm actually more optimistic now about the future of humanity than I've ever been in my life. And, um, and I think uh, that's because of some of the thinking of people like Jeremy Rifkin, who are recognizing the moment that we're in for what it is, which is this massive disruption towards greater localized innovation, uh, which you get back to plant medicine, going local, local economy, 
yes, we want local economy to emerge, farmers markets, healing collectives, but then layering on top of that, uh, um, therapeutic models, medical models, even global corporate models are fine, as long as you have that underlying fundamental abundance that comes with decriminalization and the creativity that flows from that. Can I ask, and maybe it's still in, in the kind of rumination process, but when you're building uh, a local commerce system on the rubric of, you know, lineages, black, brown communities, et cetera, how does that start to look different than commerce as most people understand it? Are there kind of tangible things you can point to so I can start to wrap my head around how that works, what it looks like? Because um, over the last couple of years, I, I've become a big believer in um, what Charlie Munger said, which is show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Um, and And so I'm wondering, like, is it just a matter of changing incentives or is there... Uh, something deeper that has to shift. I think it's it's something deeper that has to shift, and I and I think it. You know, you you have these plant medicines experiences, and one of the things that you start to realize is, wait, if I live from a place of trust, of goodness, trusting in goodness, um, I, I become more creative. Things flow better as opposed to if I'm living from fear and needing to control. Um, building off a statement you made about. You know, generally speaking, globally, we've become much more wealthier as human beings, much less tied to basic level survival. However, in, in a city like Oakland, which is representative of many cities, we have this really big disparity of wealth between our, you know, marginalized communities of color, where 80 percent of homeless people, of which there's now like 15,000 homeless people in Oakland, 80 percent are black, many of whom lived here in Oakland growing up. What's happening is that there is a giant disparity in where the wealth is going to. And so even though those communities may have better services relative to other people in communities, uh, there's a massive differential, right? So let's take the black community in Oakland in terms of healthcare or brown community in Oakland in terms of healthcare, access to good services, access to safe neighborhoods, good housing, still a big struggle. Education being the worst amongst those, our educational system in these communities is horrible. Whereas the education in a, in a wealthy community is, you know, phenomenal. So it's that disparity that really is a, a big, big problem for humanity in general, because it's going to create more and more stress, more and more division, more and more need for controls, more and more car incarceration. It's just not sustainable. So uh, that's the problem with, with the, the idea that at the, you know, one fractal level, yes, things are getting better generally, but in another fractal level, they're getting worse. So if we look at Oakland with respect to healing, uh, there are models, and, and I'll lift one up specifically since you asked for an example, uh, coming out of Dr. Sean Genwright's work, uh, where he describes persistent traumatic stress exposure. And, what's, and he doesn't work with psychedelics, but he works with what's called the radical healing model, which is around particularly healing in the black community. Uh, and he's well known. He's at San Francisco State University. So PTSD is different than PTSD because PTSD is chronic a trauma in your life nonstop. That's a different experience than a, an acute trauma experience. And it just creates a whole level of distrust about everything. Uh, and so how do you handle that? So he's come up with this whole model of healing that within community. So the radical healing model, which I think is a model example of how healing can happen in the psychedelic space. And by the way, CIS, uh, they have been receiving um, 
workshops from members who are doing, from people in the Black community of Oakland who do radical healing models. And as I understand it, it's one of the most popular workshops at CIIS for their psychedelic program. What it does is it says, let's start with information. Let's, let's pull the community together. So 100 people go through our process, including young people. Again, this doesn't include psychedelics, but it can. Uh, and I'll show you how. So let's start with information and then let's go from information. Now we take that and create education. So pamphlets and workshops and trainings. And then once we do the education thing, let's have a peak experience. Now it's sounding very familiar to a journey. Peak experience in the radical healing model might be you take families, you take them into the wilderness and you talk about what happened to the black community in the, in the American experience, including slavery. Uh, the diaspora, the black community, uh, Tulsa, what happened in Tulsa, what happened with crack cocaine. And you basically just give a big bucket of truth over a weekend. And what it does is just creates this heavy, heavy uh, experience that then has to be reconciled. So now you're seeing this is like a deep journey where you're like inundated with truth. And then you now now you have the, you end that experience, that trip into the wilderness with, OK, now let's have a conversation as community about how we reconcile this with living well in our own communities today. And so you have that, that begins the reconciliation process. And then you go into integration, not just as the individual, but as community. And this is what's different than the psychedelic, you know, therapeutic medical model is integration happens on the community level. So, you know, my, I'm Bob and I live in that community and I've been, my parents, you know, are no longer around and I'm 19 years old and I don't have any many job opportunities, and I've had a lot of violence, where do I go, right? So, so now I have this community I can be a part of. If you consider that within the context of a psychedelic experience, that feeling of being alone now that I've woken up, you're held in community. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and then the last piece is reciprocity. So it's integration, then community integration, and then it's reciprocity. Now how do I give back to those coming behind me? That's the healing process that we know well of in, in psychedelic space. They're doing it and have been doing it for 30 years in the black community of Oakland in that format. But now some of the leaders who are taking adults through healing processes with psychedelics are using it to uh, inform the entire psychedelic um, experience so that people aren't left to feel alone and abandoned after they have that awakening moment with psychedelics. These are examples. So if you take that and you build commerce around that, you can start to imagine, okay, who's growing all these medicines? Where's the retreat centers? Who's paying for it? How much is being paid for for the retreats? All these businesses that can begin to emerge just with that experience introducing uh, this, this, these, these plants. And, and I think we have a lot to learn, not just from the black community, but from indigenous community in urban and rural areas um, and um, in all communities, really. So in every community offering their own interpretation of some version of that based on their own community dynamics is what we have to learn from a bottom up approach based in community. But again, it's just being comfortable with gray area um, because it's all going to be fluid, dynamic, messy. Thank you for sharing that. It, it makes a, a ton of sense to me. And it's actually, in many ways, I think the impetus for this conversation, which was, you know, I had posted something online, which in subsequent conversations with you and, 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 and Lucas and all that kind of stuff was taken out of context. But one of the things I've struggled with since I've been part of this, I'll call it movement, is there's a it feels like people are trying to jam, you know, indigenous lineage and reciprocity down your throat. And if you don't, you know, 
kowtow to that, then you're doing it wrong or anything along those lines. And I, I certainly uh, have felt like that, that force of like, this is how you have to think. And it, it it's what, you know, my reaction was and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is the first time anyone's ever explained it to me being like, Oh, I get that now. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Now I can be invited into that conversation. Whereas for a lot of the conversation, it doesn't feel like there's an opportunity to actually be informed and educated and understand it because for some people who start this process, they may go through it and not be ready to give back. Maybe they'll get there. And, and that's, that's like that ambiguity has always been the struggle between like, maybe people aren't there yet. Or do we have compassion for that? Or do you have to accept, you know, this part of the equation? And that's where I get, you know, that's where my, my shadow pieces come up and, and I get uncomfortable and be like, whoa, let's stop. Let's stop pushing that so hard for people who aren't ready to hear it. Um, so all that's to say, thank you for explaining that. Well, I'd love to riff off of that, Ronan. And, and first of all, I just want to say that when you posted that, um, it, it did, I was, you know, this is a tough gig to be out here pushing for this position. There's, I make no money, right? This is all volunteer and it's a tough gig to be the, the target. I get shots, you know, I get criticisms, not just from people who are in the private, you know, profiteering side. I get criticisms from people who are of indigenous ancestry, accusing me of not being indigenous enough because I don't follow certain ways of being indigenous, despite the fact that my people paid very high prices for being indigenous, including being the lowest people in the economic totem pole in America, picking the fruit everyone else eats. Um, so so I get a lot of flack. And so when I read it, I was triggered. And what you got was my shadow. And I, I want to thank you for having so much grace in how you handle my shadows sincerely. And that's why we're here. So kudos to you for that and um, um, responding so well. I do want to say that what I described earlier as the radical healing models and of this one in the black community is not something that would be looked at favorably by many people in the indigenous community because it's not indigenous enough. Now, I come out of an urban area and what I care about is what I, not what I care. I care about all humanity. But what I have experience with, you know, are, are the cholos, the vatos, the, the brothers you know, in the hood, in the barrio, like people who really are scraping to just get by in an urban setting. I'm not as familiar about living on a reservation, but I will, you know, um, push very hard to make sure that people in an urban area are valued just as much as people on a reservation or people living in a mansion in the hills because we're all human and we're all beautiful. So I have really taken some flack because I have said every human has a right to con connect with their own indigeneity based on their ancestral paths. And while some of us may be more connected to our more recent indigenous paths than others, let's treat all of our indigenous ancestry, whether it was 2000 years ago or 100 years ago or still today, with respect. And uh, we have a lot to learn from the indigenous ways of healing. And when I say that, I mean specifically in America the Wiharika, the Lakota, uh, and others, but they're not the only ways and they don't work for everybody. So we can give it reverence without being bullied or mandated into using that model for ourselves because those models won't work in an urban area. They simply won't. It's not tangible culturally. Uh, there's no symbolism and meaning that would sort of be absorbed in the experience in an urban area. 
So I subscribe to a model that let's just everybody build the models that work for them in their own culture or for themselves. And let's all have reverence for each other, whether we are indigenous uh, as, as like from the Americas or not, because we're all human. We're all in this path together. We all sink or swim together. Uh, we all survive together or not. That's not a very popular statement. I get a lot of crap for that kind of statement. I, I get it. Uh, first of all, thank you um, for just recognizing the conversation that um, transpired between us. Again, I do send my apologies. I do recognize after the conversation how it could have been received in a way that I didn't want it to and, and triggered a whole bunch of things. B, if I could reach to the computer and give you a fist bump right now, um, I would, because that's very much how I see the world, which is like, we need to give respect for everybody where where they are. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm Jewish. I was just ch chatting with my my friend Daniel, who's also Jewish, and he had an ayahuasca experience, and he recognized that, you know, his great grandfather, who was a rabbi, you know, reading Torah, which to me sounds like the most insidious, boring, stupid thing um, to do, even though I'm Jewish, he's like, that was my great grandfather's way of having these peak experiences, and I was like, oh. Fuck, I never thought about that. So here I am kind of self-hating on like my lineage. And then I'm like, and then I had a moment of like, oh no, I can have respect even for that, even though it was so alien and foreign and weird and uncool to me. All that's to say, I'm sorry you get flack for it. I do share your perspective of like, let's let's embrace all of it. Let's have respect for all of it and and share without forcing, I think is is what we we should and can be doing. So so thank you for saying all that. Right on. Appreciate that. You put a lot of thought into preparing for this conversation, and I wanted to make sure we we spoke to that. Which is, you know, you you came from with thoughts about the convergence happening in the advocacy community, uh, and that before that there was a lot of divergence how groups were approaching it. And I think we touched on it, you know, just a, a shed here, but in an important way in our in our last couple of minutes. But can you please explain more about the thinking around that and and what you wanted to share and the perspectives on it? Yeah. So, so my role in coming into the movement, because I've been in politics and in a place like Oakland, it's very um, contentious politics. So and I said this before publicly, we, you know, on Tuesday night, councils were on Tuesday nights. It would be like trench warfare because everybody is fighting for scarce resources for their community. We're talking some very impoverished communities, some very wealthy communities, but everybody fights equally hard because their their causes are all equally important. So Tuesday nights we're in trench warfare. Wednesday night, I mean Wednesday morning, we're having coffee together in the in the city hall break room, and that's policy making, right? So, and and I think when I got into the psychedelic movement, that was my reference point. So my job was to shake things up to you know, get the mic to people who otherwise wouldn't have the mic to push certain paradigms into the mainstream that otherwise wouldn't be there. Things like equitable access, abundance, you know, the right, indigenous rights, the rights of, you know, black, brown in urban communities, those kinds of things. And um, they, there wasn't a lot of dialogue around those when we first started. Uh, and then recently, um, I, I had this waking up moment because I stayed in those trenches. That was my role in decrim nature was to constantly be throwing elbows and pushing things open and getting my way in because that's I had good training in that and I'm comfortable with conflict. And, and I want to say that it's conflict of paradigm and idea is not com it's not personal conflict that I'm advocating here. So 
Bronner and I have you know, banged heads together, but I'm sure he's a be- beautiful human being and just as worthy of love as I am, as I believe I am. And so there's no hard feelings and it's, it's just, it's not personal, um, but you do what you got to do to expand the conversation. So I woke up one day because my role is, you know, pushing, throwing elbows, whatever, being in the trenches. I woke up one day and I thought, who am I throwing elbows against now? And this is like in December after Prop 1 and 22 passed. And I read it and it's a great piece of legislation, in my opinion. And then I read SB 58 introduced here in California, subsequent to SB 519. And though it's not perfect and it still has limits, which decrim nature does not support, it's still a workable piece of legislation to protect everybody, including the most marginalized, if we just tweak a couple things. And then I saw Mason Marks coming out about the um, the, the attempts in Oregon to, to take uh, private data and his efforts and the, the momentum he built around that. And I thought, we are in this moment of convergence and I'm throwing elbows against the clouds now, really, because... I think we're all largely here. There's still some issues like peyote and, you know, limits that we got to tweak around to have conversation. But for the most part, everybody is now talking about these issues, not just talking about medical and therapeutic and profiteering, which was the big conversations being held early on five years ago. But now we're also talking about indigenous rights and the rights of black brown and even, you know, sexual assault in therapeutic clinics, as well as in shamanistic circles that we need to deal with and be real about. All of it uh, we're talking about now. And I realized we've reached this moment of convergence where now we ought to just sit down and figure out, tweak the 90% that we all agree on, figure out what to do with the 10%, put it aside for a moment. We still have work to do together. But really, we're not each other's enemies anymore. So if we get out the trenches, we walk to the center of the battlefield. And I, I use this kind of language because it's easy language for talking about policymaking. If we just walk to the center of the battlefield and we and we take stock, we'll realize, damn, we agree on a lot of stuff. And I'm not talking about like very conservative plant policy people that, that want full controls. I'm talking about new approach pack, unlimited science, decrim nature, you know, your organization. Uh, we're all largely there. So how do we work together now again and then push good policy and defend good policy like Prop 122, which may come under assault? Uh, because the real adversaries on the horizon now is not each other. It's it's conservative thought relative to um, plant policy, right? That it has to be put in a capsule and that people shouldn't have access to growing it. Or it's also the big profiteers that, that want to align with that to make sure that we don't have abundance because then they can sell more into scarcity. So, uh, and I guess I, I want to take my lumps on that because, uh, you know, I stayed in the trenches maybe a little too long. I should have maybe got out in November. Um, but it was just busy and hectic. And uh, but here I am now ready to uh, have these conversations with uh, whoever's ready to have them about how we defend. Really, I think right now the big opportunity is defending Prop 122 together. And building Prop 122 together in a meaningful way for implementation. But then on SB 58 is how do we ensure that everybody is protected under SB 58? Because we're almost there, which is a little bit more dialogue. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um... You know, it, it's been my experience and I don't have the totality of experience, but I feel like most, most people, even the people that would probably get flagged as being on the most conservative end of the spectrum want to move to a system that we're talking about right now. I think it's just the, the checkerboard moves to get there, which is I supported, you know, uh, what happened in Oregon. Uh, I can see how it's inconsistent with decrim nature, but the reason I supported it is not because I didn't want a path where there was 
as abundant access as possible, but because the the Oregon model was something that was digestible to where the consensus is right now. And that kind of creates the the wedge. So you get your foot in the door and then you can open it further. So I think I think there is a lot of alignment, uh, even in, in in the most conservative views. That's my perspective, but I absolutely share your perspective, which is I absolutely should be de- decriminalized. No one should be going for, to jail for this. People should have access. Um, all of that is is a hundred percent true. Uh, it's just what do we have to do to get the buy in? Do we go for the the hail mary pass and try and get it in it in the end zone in one one play, or do we try and take a more incremental approach? And my sense is that's probably where a lot of the disagreement lies, uh, as opposed to the bigger goal. I would say for those who live this world from a place of compassion, that's true. I think there are a lot of people, this is where I would diverge from that statement. There are a lot of people in this world who either live from a very heightened state of fear and will probably take that to their their grave and what they want are full controls to make them feel safe in this chaotic world. And top-down controls is the way they go. And we see that in even incarceration of people. Put those people in jail. They're just troublemakers, right? And you're talking about entire races of people that that rhetoric comes from. Um, and, and I think it's based in, in fear. And I'm not saying they're bad people. They're just in this heightened state of fear. And I think our society really promulgates that. But there's also the, the profiteering motive. I think there are people in the world who just really get off on making more and more money. And it drives them. It's fun. It's exciting. And that's the path they've chosen. And again, not, you know, not evil people. They've chosen a path that means a top-down hierarchical structure of controls. Uh, would win, and there I can envision a world in the future, and so could other, especially science, you know, science fiction writers, have envisioned a world where top-down controls are what happens to us inevitably. But then there's this other world where we're more like a flock of starlings. We move together in consciousness, where where we we uh, trust and invest in the education of people in a decentralized, bottom-up approach to living, where where we can enable the greatest creativity uh, and, and fulfillment of life of all humans without the need of these top-down, you know, uh, controls. So I think that both of those future realities for humans are equally real. The moment that we're in will determine which path we follow. Um, But I don't necessarily think we all have the same motives of love and compassion, but that's not a judgment call. That's just more saying, I don't think we've all achieved that uh, state of being. And I think it all starts with recognizing that they're not bad people necessarily. That is where they are right now and how they see the world. And if we could just all accept that, because I do feel like there's a a lot of judgment still in the community. Uh, But if we get to a place where everyone's like, you're not a bad person, you see the world differently. And I have compassion for that. That's going to go a long way to facilitating conversation and and exactly like this conversation here. That's a really beautiful note to to end. Absolutely. That's the end of the questions I had prepared, um, and it's a beautiful note to end on. So I'm perfectly happy to put a nice bow in this conversation and package it up for a podcast. But I wanted to give you the opportunity, if there's anything you wanted to raise or wanted to ask me, I I wanted to make sure we had an opportunity for that as well. I'm I'm great. This has been a wonderful um, conversation with you. Again, really appreciate you um, stepping into it and being an example of how we can come together and have conversation. Hopefully many of more of these will follow with many people and we find common ground. I want to thank you as well for, for taking the step, uh, trusting us to have this conversation, uh, making yourself honest and, and vulnerable. It's been great. I look forward to many more with you, actually. I, I hope this is the first of many. Uh, so I'm going to wish you continued 
best wishes for all the work you're doing with decrim decriminalized nature. I want to thank you for it. I think it's incredibly important work um, and, and we'll continue arm in arm uh, in open dialogue as we continue to move forward. Thank you.